Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 328th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Thomas West. Thomas is a senior partner for Signature Estate and Investment Advisors, an independent RA based in Los Angeles, California, that oversees nearly $16 billion in assets, with $570 million of those managed by Thomas's practice, serving more than 250 client households. What's unique about Thomas, though, is how he has leveraged providing advice to seniors looking for appropriate housing and healthcare as they deal with medical and cognitive issues in their later years and turned it into a standalone offering he calls the Life Care Affordability Plan, which was so successful as a value add to his clients and their elder parents that he was able to spin it out to a separate DBA under his firm and begin charging for it as a standalone service. In this episode, we talk in depth about how in the early stages of his career selling long-term care insurance, Thomas realized that so-called one-legger senior couples, where one spouse is healthy but the other is not, such that if something happened to a healthy spouse, it would knock the legs out from both of them, face unique challenges as a couple because their decisions about healthcare have significant financial ramifications but are usually decided within the family and not with the financial advisor. How Thomas leveraged the guidance he was providing to senior couples that needed help navigating health and especially cognitive decline into creating the DBA to his firm that offers his life care affordability plan so that he could get paid for an in-depth advice he was already providing. And why Thomas feels that his planning is so important is he saw it personally how his father-in-law struggled with managing financial planning during the financial crisis in 2008 on top of medical issues shortly after his mother-in-law had died of cancer. Let's talk about why, despite the rising industry trend towards centralized model portfolios managed on a discretionary basis, over 90% of the assets that Thomas and his firm manager held on a non-discretionary basis. How Thomas has found that because he mostly manages non-discretionary assets and has to call clients about every investment recommendation, it actually increases the frequency of client communication and portfolio customization and allows them to engage more deeply with clients. And why Thomas's firm doesn't charge more for the additional service of trading assets for clients on a discretionary basis, and instead charges less for clients who are willing to let him manage with discretion, yet in practice has been able to differentiate and grow primarily with the firm's higher-priced non-discretionary offering instead. And be certain to listen to the end, where Thomas shares why he believes that newer advisors have an opportunity to provide value for their clients by being proactive and having conversations about planning for medical crises before they arise, and by doing so can create deeper, longer-lasting relationships with clients. How Thomas has become more comfortable with easing into his big ideas and understanding they won't all succeed, as he admits that he would dive headfirst in ideas and take failure personally in the past. And how Thomas's own definition of success has shifted through his career from one that focused early on on being competitive about his production to the greater good impact that he feels his elder planning work brings now, which has kept him working far harder now than he ever expected when he first launched his advisory business years ago. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Thomas West. Welcome, Tom West, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Happy to be here, Michael. 
I'm really looking forward to the discussion today and, and talking, I guess, at a high level, as I would think it around the, the, the kinds of value-added services that we try to provide to clients in today's environments to, to differentiate, to stand out, to, to retain. And, and I've always been fascinated with, I just kind of call it like a subset of firms that create this thing that starts out as a value-add, which to me is just sort of a nice way of saying we do it as an extra thing for clients, but we don't charge them for it. We just do it because it's a good service and it's good business and either it brings in more clients or it makes them stickier. So, you know, the we get compensated indirectly from the richness of the client relationship. But sure. we don't we don't we don't charge for the thing. Right. And but every now and then I find there are firms that can go this direction of creating value add services. And then they like it goes so far and they get so good at it. It actually becomes a thing they charge before. Like it, it goes from being a value add service to just being a valued service uh, that that you can actually charge money for, which opens the door not only to doing it for existing clients, but also doing it for other people out in your community who then may become clients because they're attracted by the service. Mm-hmm. And I know you you've done a version of this in what to me is a frankly a particularly messy domain for most of us as advisors, which is helping clients when they or their family members start going through situations like Alzheimer's, cognitive decline, and a whole bunch of health, medical, lifestyle, housing, and other changes that all start coming up in that moment. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this interesting intersection of sort of value added service that even becomes valued services and, and going deeper into an area of Alzheimer's and cognitive decline that most advisors tend to kind of back away from a little because, you know, here there be dragons. Uh, And just how you got to a world where you decided to go deeper on this instead of backing away. Like how how did you even get going in this direction? Sure. Well, I mean, I think that the coming into the financial services industry feeling a little bit like an outsider back in the day in the in the early mid 90s probably is 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 a good place to start so um, my, my personal story was, you know, I, I get engaged and married at way too young of an age, right out of, right out of, uh, grad school. And, uh, in the early nineties, I can't find a job in my profession of choice. And John Hancock, mutual life insurance company, uh, was one of the, uh, places that was calling me back for, you know, gainful employment, uh, simultaneous with, me running out of money and moving in with, to my in-laws' basement, and while I'm trying to find my real job, I guess I'll uh, uh, suck it up and do cold calling for long-term care insurance. But um, when 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 I sort of developed into this area of expertise, um, what what effectively I learned was a few things. One, it turned out that I was a pretty good insurance salesman. Uh, even though it was just a miserable existence, I, I was good at it. And I was, in fact, able to make a little bit of money. But in the early 90s, I was discovering before the market had been sensitized to knowing even what long-term care insurance was, a lot of families that were interested in being solicited by you know, a semi-annoying 25-year-old were, were people that already had some medical issue that they were concerned about. Like the, the market had not figured out, like, listen, we underwrite. Um, So I was meeting a lot of families that they already had a diagnosis that at this point they want to go and they want to see if there's any uh, possibility of having future costs insured against. And even though we'd been trained in our sales training to try to vet 
you know, don't go out to, uh, you know, meet people that are uninsurable. Yeah, sure enough, say, Tom, I, like these, these right. are, I remember my insurance says, like, these are the people you're supposed to stop talking to because right. they're not insurable once they've already had an event. <laughs> sure. And like, then I, I don't know that I had the, I had the most auspicious start, but I mean, I think that, that like we, I, I, maybe this is the same as your, your start, but we, we used to call when you're in touch with households where one was insurable and the other wasn't insurable, we, we call yep. those one-legger appointments. And I ended up being the master of the one-legger appointments. And what, what, what really that involved was going out and meeting usually with a couple. Sometimes one of the spouses was a caregiver for the other spouse. The, mm-hmm. the primary problem that they want to have solved isn't insuring themselves, the healthy yep. spouse, they're looking for um, some assistance for the ill spouse. And, you know, the sales technique, you know, back in the day was usually an algebra problem. Like, you know, well, given all of the expenses and resources and mind share and family effort it's going to take to take care of, you know, the, the, the ill spouse, we should have the long-term care insurance in place for you as sort of a yeah. backstop. But, but that was, you know, that, that, that stunk. I mean, it, like it was, it was, I was good at it, but I, I didn't feel like I was really meeting the client, you know, at the place where they're really looking for some differentiated value. Yeah. I was sort of plugging up like a plan C gap. And yeah, I, re- I remember those, I remember those sales in the early long-term care days as well. I was a little bit after you, I was doing in the very early two thousands, but mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of those conversations, like, well, let's, you know, you're you're the healthy spouse, but if something happens to you, then you're both in trouble really quickly. So we we need to cover we need to cover you as the healthy spouse, or ideally, we need to cover you with a really big indemnity policy that pays mm-hmm. enough in daily benefits that if you get sick, there's actually enough to cover both of you, so that you can both get care if the early spouse goes down and. And out came the 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 unum policy. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And and you know I think that that there were a few sort of characters in you know the, these these group of early clients that were were real pivotal in I guess my the the story of my success and evolution, which were some of these you know one legger appointments um, because you know when I was in order to make those particular sales. You know, I had to spend a lot of time getting to know folks. I certainly had to spend a lot of unexpected time um, becoming more comfortable in the room with somebody with dementia. And like at 25, mm. like I had no family experience with any of this stuff at all. And there's 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 a there's a few stories I hope we get to. But one of them was there's an appointment with a lady named Mary. She was taking care of her her her, her husband, and they were over in Bethesda. And um, you know what she really was worried about was. Um, you know, the family is going to be getting together over the holidays and they're going to see the symptoms of, you know, her husband. And she, and she was mostly anxious about, I, I want to protect him. I'm interested in making sure that they think I know what I'm doing. And, you know, that that was sort of the main area of, of concern that she's got. And she thought, and I framed from a selling standpoint, well, maybe like the taking the step with you doing your long-term care insurance could be part of your messaging to the family of like, I'm trying to pay attention to stuff and I've got it. And that was, pro- that was sort of a pivotal point of the sale. So, you know, I, you know, I'm, I don't know anything. I'm asking, well, where are the resources that you've got for, you know, your husband and whatnot? Well, she doesn't really know any. So I get this idea of, of the Alzheimer's Association. That was really the only, you know, uh, name that I knew in this particular yeah. diagnostic space with, with no family experience. So I, I this true story, I, I knock on the door of the Alzheimer's Association. I said, hey, 
I'm, I'm a long-term care insurance salesman. Let me, I'm just imagining the expression of the person <laughs> on the other end of the phone, right? So I'm a long-term care insurance salesman and learning to know more about Alzheimer's. And, um, you know, can you help me work? Can I get some resources, the rest of it? So there's a program director. Her name, was Be- her name was Betty Ransom. I became great friends with her afterwards. But her immediate response, Michael, was, we got to get this guy out of here. Like, I just, the last thing we need is a long-term care insurance guy hovering around. You yeah, know, hovering around the Alzheimer's <laughs> folks. Like, just to be no, clear, yeah, no. let's, put the, let's put the really salesy people right next to the really exactly vulnerable right. so, seniors. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So she sends me, she's like, great. And I've got just the thing for you, Tom. I'm going to let you you know, sort of co-host a social working group that we've got meeting at a local church about family and grief around the holidays with dementia. <laughs> was- so, so, so I'm going to guess, right, like 25-year-old uh, yes. long-term care insurance agents, like she gave you this to set you up to oh, fail. Oh, like it was – and listen, I mean, I, I didn't know anything about anything. So I, I go into this thing and it, it was it was so traumatic. It was like I came home, like I had to go home. I couldn't go back to the office. I was in a fetal position. It was a PTSD. It was like, it was, by the way, it was extremely effective. And well, uh, evidently, like, but hey, like this is real life for for some right. people. What they're going through, right? Just like right. good, good life changing lesson moment. Even if that, right? No, I thought, I thought so. And you know, I you know, I I I I, I was unprepared. And like truth told. I was so unprepared for that particular sort of, uh, you know, workshop session that they had that I don't remember to this day too much about it. I think that that what I came away with was there was an enormous amount of families dealing with this stuff in real time that wasn't getting a whole lot of recognition. I think that there was a lot of messaging that was coming out around things like we can't talk about different aspects of what we're being challenged with in social circles. We can't talk about it in professional circles. And it started at least a degree of curiosity in me, which was along the lines of, well, I mean, how much of this is going on sort of all around us? So I took the experience back to the long-term care insurance sales manager. And I said, like, well, look, you know, what, what, what is out there outside of long-term care insurance in the financial services industry that can help out with anything? And he's like, well... There's not really a whole lot. I mean, like if you're in insurance world, you know, mostly what we do is we prepare folks for the possibility of needing help ahead, but we don't really have anything in what you can sell for a commission that sort of adds to things. So he drew a circle for me and it was just, it's basically two circles. He says, here's healthcare. And then he had a Venn diagram circle of another one. And like, here's money. He says, Tom, like you got to operate at this sort of overlap. So, you know, Keep making your phone calls, keep going out and trying to find, you know, more uh, uh, prospects. You're able to convert and get this, what amounted to be a big long-term care insurance book sort of set up. And, you know, I, I went back to Mary and I told her about the the grief around the holidays thing. And she thought that that was sort of a big value to her. What was, what, what came out of it though, was she sort of pivoted. <laughs> And she said, listen, is there anything else that you can do? Because, you know, I haven't met anybody in financial services that's taken this kind of interest. You know, is there anything else that that you can do for me outside of this long-term care insurance? I'm like, I don't know anything about anything. So I go back to the sales manager guy. All right, we already did the insurance. Like, 
is there anything else that's sort of out there? And he drew another circle on the bottom underneath the money side. So it was health on the top, money in the middle. And on the bottom, it was family goals and planning and whatnot. And he'd sort of X'd in that little overlap area and says like, okay, well, once you've handled the money as it relates to future healthcare planning, you could, you know, if you, you know, go down education and CHFC or CFP or those sorts of things, you could start getting into financial planning and, you know, live in this space. So, you know, you can, you know, work towards overlapping there. And, you know, for a smart guy like you, Tom, you know, you might be able to learn about, you know, the Swiss army knife of problem solving everything for your clients, which of course, you know, is variable universal life insurance, which I was, you know, I was, I was, I was, we are in the late 1990s. I right, 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 right. And I was, I was inspired. He said I was a smart guy. So, I mean, it, it had to be a good, you know, anchor to the rest of my career. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but uh, what really, what really came out of it was sort of a realization that this is kind of a blind spot. And there was, there was a point where I took the three circles that were on top of each other. And I kind of realized through these conversations with Mary, that, you know, the idea of typical financial goal planning and whatnot, like she's not thinking about any of that stuff. You know, well, what were previously the financial goals that you had? Well, standard of living and take care of the kids and maybe college planning. But, you know, she's expressing to me stuff that only involves keeping her husband safe, staying at home, like staying together, those sorts of pieces. And everything that I knew, at least in the early 90s, about the typical hierarchy of priorities that you do all your solves for and your you know, then I was using SunGuard as a financial planning software. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not what she's talking about at all. So it, it occurred to me that, like, the, the, it was more of a three-circle Venn diagram. And I think that the, the blind spot that I saw, which was really, you know, changing in the direction that I took my career, was that spot where it all overlapped, which is, what are the healthcare decisions that require a financial response and competent decision-making on a family level across both healthcare and money. And I was staring at it for a while and I'm I'm asking questions like, well, who's responsible for being in that spot? Because, you know, I go back to my, my sales manager, like, okay, well, you know, I can do the money in the family planning, you know, goal planning stuff, and I can do the money in the healthcare. But as soon as healthcare intersects with, with, with family, like it's a blind spot. And then all of a sudden, financial advisors move from being active guides to bystanders, and they're not in the room, and they have to react to whatever the new reality is that the family is discovering through their diagnosis, through their, their, their mm. the period of care that's, that's sort of projected. And we all of a sudden have to wait to be order takers to say, how is this going to impact just a little bit of, you know, what we do at that point. I think that's an, a really interesting framing to me, just sort of this phenomenon that, you know, we we pride ourselves, I, I find in the advisor space on like, we're planners, we look ahead, we plan ahead, we project ahead, we we uh, provide the recommendations to navigate the the things that may be coming at us around, you know, whether that's growth or managing risk or all the different pieces. But when you actually get to those moments our tool sets become very, very thin or or non-existent, right? As you framed it, like I can do planning for money and family and I can do planning for money and healthcare. But when you get to the overlap of family and healthcare, I'm usually not in the room. 
I yeah. I get told by clients like, yeah, you know, uh, we had a tumultuous, uh, uh, you know, I know we had that plan that we talked about a few months ago, but it was kind of a bumpy holiday season. My kids came out. Um, they're really concerned about what's going on with their dad uh, and and whether we can take care of them on their own. And so uh, I've decided I'm going to be moving across the country so that I can be next to my oldest uh, and and they can help watch over and manage my husband. And also like, yeah, all the planning stuff we were doing. It it changed in one uh, one family holiday gathering. Yep. That's right. No, that's <laughs> that exactly I was right. not in the room for, but now I'm getting told like, yep, whole whole plans turned upside down now because our our life's making a change because of what happened in the ha- in, in the health and family uh, aspects. And like, yes, there are money repercussions and and consequences and outcomes to that. But I think you make a good point that most of us advisors are not in the room when that family conversation happens because it doesn't start with money it starts with healthcare and family and they let that drive and then they you know the the money shapes around it which i would argue is a pretty good way to prioritize the family but it means we're not in the room right when that stuff actually gets decided and determined even though that's really weighty uh moments for financial advice i would say not planning per se because it's it's not planning for the future. It's real time, but mm-hmm. there are advice moments, and we're we're not there necessarily. You know, when when I'm having this conversation with 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 Mary, uh, she, she's she's a good client, and I, I I move very quickly into okay, we're going to do this financial goal planning stuff. And she had I think at the time around six seven hundred thousand dollars, which is a good portfolio back when we were starting. And yeah, that was um, a good that was a good client then. Yeah, it was a good client, and um and and the the you know the 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 mystery of the blind spot for Tom Deepen because. I go out. I'm, I'm at Mary's dining room table, and her husband is is at the dining room table, smiling. I think my introduction to actually being in the room with folks with dementia, it it actually was easier with 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 his particular set of behavioral symptoms because he was just smiling and happy. Like I, I think that if it was something where you had more mm. dramatic behavioral symptoms, I, I might not have been as comfortable being such a like a dementia newbie. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the conversation with Mary around the table was like I, I built like at the time what I thought was the coolest financial plan forever. And this is why you need to manage my money. And I I did at the time I thought something that was pretty innovative. It was anticipating changing costs. I recalculated liquidity. You're going to be needing to hit money at a faster rate. I anticipated, listen, as long as your husband is alive, he's going to need help that you got to pay for. As long as you're paying for help, you're going to have a big itemized medical expense deduction. And the itemized medical expense deduction is going to wipe out all of your income tax liability for any time that he's alive. So on January 1, you've got a very different tax planning variable than you have moving forward. You got a bunch of municipal bonds. You won't have to pay taxes. So, so I mean, I, I got super nerdy. I sort of flexed into it. Yeah. So, so Mary, who's a really smart lady, uh, I think she was a, she's a government professional and, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't, you know, uncomfortable with numbers. She said, this is my other telling moment. She said, Tom, I'm, I'm going to let you manage my money, but I can't pay attention to any of that stuff at all. She's like, just to give you a frame of reference, like, and I believe your plan is good. And the reason I'm going to let you manage my money is I can tell you believe your plan is good. But as a, as sort of a frame of reference, my goal this morning was remember to eat lunch. So coming back mm-hmm. to coming back to you know what I thought was the way to meet my client where they were, in this particular chapter, well, well, that didn't work. And I had to 
spend a lot of time, which really developed in sort of a passion project and how, you know, my work, I ended up being on the board of the Alzheimer's Association. I ended up doing a lot of work with uh, when the Alzheimer's Association merged to the capital area and they decided to be more of a fundraising for research. Um, they didn't do a lot of the programming for stuff. And I wanted to stay with as close to sort of boots on the ground, taking care of family. So I, I moved into an adult day center, did some leadership stuff there. And then, you know, I closed out a lot of this leadership and board and advocacy stuff actually just last year where I left, uh, a 10 or 11 year run with um, a big life plan community uh, in Northern Virginia, where I, I wore a bunch of different hats. And part of the reason that I spent so much time there goes back to aspects of that lunch with Mary. Mary telling me that all she wants to do is remember to eat lunch because the way that we're trying to communicate with clients about getting them to accept a CTA that will improve financial outcomes, like all of the tools that we had from a communication standpoint. Remember, most of us in financial services come out of either a sales history or an analytical history. And those of us that are pretty good, like we have a, skills in both, but none of us are social workers. None of us are yeah. nurses. None, like the, and that's the only way you're able to communicate with you know, the Marys of the world. Well, I'm, I'm struck, I mean, the the story and the dynamics you tell, I think, around Mary are are really powerfully illustrating just the place that some clients really are, particularly when they're in 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 the sorts of moments of dealing with family members that that have serious health issues as they're uh, as they're aging. Right, I, I know a lot of us as advisors tend to talk talk something to the effect of we work with delegators who don't want to manage the portfolio so that we can manage it for them and they can do other things in their in their lives of um, travel the world or enjoy your retirement or 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 more. But you know, the, like to to get it down to Mary's level, I mean, you're literally talking about like I've, I've never seen advisors website that says you know. We'll worry about the money so you can worry about your husband and remember to eat lunch. Right, right. And by the way, that's, and like, that's what like that's what got the business. Like she trusted you enough yep. that you she trusts that you can you can pay attention to the money so she can pay attention to her husband and whether she ate lunch that day. And that's yep. her that's her reality for like I think you said at the time, a six hundred thousand dollar client at the time, which is a you know million plus dollar client today. Sure. Sure. And and I think that that let, let's one thing that I always said, if I go back to we we're talking about long term care insurance. I mean, I had a love hate relationship with my sales managers and that 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 um, that chapter in my career because w one of the pieces that we kept on going back and forth with was you know if if, if your long term care insurance prospect you know ends up you know. Um, being uninsurable, there's nothing you can do about it. Well, what happens if my long-term care insurance client makes a claim? What do we do? Well, we send it to claims. Well, what can I do about it? Well, you really can't do anything about it. It's all uh, throw your hands up in the air. It's all like, you know, get the next God. new client. Yeah, I've got like, why don't you get back on the phone? Why don't you use that as a cautionary tale about how your next sale should go? And like, this is terrible. But there's also an aspect of, you know, we throw our hands up and there's nothing we can do. But there's always some early messaging in my career with people that wanted to focus me to get back on the phone is, you know, you really can't see any of this stuff coming. And I like, I remember struggling in my 20s and like, you know, the, the, the oldest baby boomer like in, in the 90s was like just turning 50. 
Okay. Right. And, you know, you're projecting forward like really nobody can see this coming. There's, it's going to be a total mystery that nobody can <laughs> anticipate an aging America where folks have to make compromised financial decisions because of healthcare. That's, that's going to sneak up on everybody in the middle of the night and it's going to be a big surprise. And I kind of rejected that just because, you know, the weight of demographics. And, um, but you're, you're going back to Mary or families like Mary or the rest of it is just think about how tough it is to make decisions about money in that circumstance. Because you don't know how long somebody's going to live. You don't know how sick they're going to get. You know, you're, you're, you're not you're having a hard time, like accepting the reality that you're living in to begin with. So what you probably try to do is you try to wait for more information to present itself for you to react to. So mm-hmm. you can act with more confidence. And of course, that just is like this rolling procrastination monster that you only know how it ended up after somebody dies and it, and it handicaps folks in the middle of a vulnerable decision-making chapter. You know, you've done a good job talking about stress and, you know, the cortisol wash and analytics yeah. going out the window and executive function and cognitive issues. But, you know, the, the really, if, if we're trying to sort of map out who is the guide that can actually speak healthcare to guide a family mm-hmm. through the financial aspects. And I mean, I would offer there isn't one. It isn't anybody's job. And I think that that when you're trying to look at what are the true norths or sort of the compass readings that I've tried to shape my career around is the market is going to force that question to be answered. And those of us that have the capacity to sort of bridge those worlds, I, I call them sort of internally two tribes. There's the tribe of the senior housing and healthcare world, and there's the tribe of the financial services world. And they don't speak each other's language. They don't trust each other, but they're both giving clients guidance on how to navigate this particular chapter of their lives that's never coordinated. And it, it's, it's, it feels to me like trying to evolve different business models or different offerings that you be able to access the Marys of the world or her family sort of where they are and still maintain a fiduciary standard and a business model that's profitable I mean, that, that's, that's the windmill that I'm tilting at it, because, I mean, the demographics say that that question will be answered, but that's kind of the space that I continue to sort of play around with different, different approaches. So, so help me understand how this moves forward to the, the business world that you have today. So I get you're, you're living this in the long-term care insurance agent context where mm-hmm. – you know, you can have these conversations, you know, at least distinguishes you as long-term care insurance agent, but at the end of the day, you're paid for long-term care insurance sales. I know your your model has since gone gone far away from those those roots. So how did this start to shift and 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 change from the the business model perspective? Well, I mean, I think that at the time, you know, there there, there weren't a whole lot of different business models. There was there was the 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 Insurance in the commissionable world, the BD world, where you, you know you, you, your your comp is embedded in either transactions or buried in a, a product, um, and I was fortunate in the sense that I was a uh, a successful enough insurance producer that um, I really didn't have to go too deep in my career in that BD and commission investment world. Because you know, I'm I'm trying to find like, okay, what's the what's the 
the the puzzle piece of the financial invest or the investments that are going to fit Mary. Well, you know, I don't want to lock stuff up. So anything with a surrender period that that's that's terrible. Right. Um, it, I know now enough about how to manage a portfolio that because of liquidity and taxes and I need, you know, a new constraints on volatility, I know that I'm going to have to find something that's a little bit more customizable. Like you can't just slam somebody into a model um, when they've got those kinds of particulars. Um, so what ended up happening is, uh, you know, everybody's career, you know, ends up being, you know, having a little uh, ray of sunshine of luck. Um, I ended up becoming affiliated and ultimately, um, you know, becoming an advisor. And I'm now a senior partner at a big uh, RIA uh, called Signature Estate and Investment Advisors, SEIA. And the big differentiation in RIA land all the way back when I started was this non-discretionary piece. And what non-discretionary meant for me, I mean, what it means for everybody else is the investor is not giving the advisor full discretion to put them into a model. It usually means that they're checking with them on individual transactions and, you know, they're maintaining some shared control, like we euphemistically, you know, call it, you know, we were sharing the baton from a decision-making standpoint. But what I wanted Michael, back in the long-term care insurance transition days, is I wanted the option to customize and tailor portfolios based on what these realities were with that seemed to be very household specific and why I didn't want to do a model. And if I needed non-discretionary to do that sort of tailored stuff, that's where I started. So I the insurance production was good enough that I was able to move right into percentage of assets managed, and I kind of skipped the whole BD world or commissionable investments. Um, and I moved from commission insurance right into FRIA. And it probably took, as, as, as it did you or a lot of our listeners, a few years to get rolling fees up to the point where, where they were meaningful. Um, but I had this insurance production that sort of subsidized that along the way. And meaning, and meaning meaning you still had like trails on old insurance policies. Yeah, that and I was were, still selling some. In. Yeah, the retail okay. long-term care insurance, which I mean, we could spend you know an hour talking about that, the history of uh, of that. But I mean, retail long-term care insurance hadn't blown up yet in terms of sort of a new yeah. offer, so it was still part of my um, portfolio that I was bringing to the clients. But really, what I was looking at is I was experimenting a lot with how do I play around with portfolios using these particulars? And then, you know, it's, it's like a lot of us, you know, if you specialize in something really hard, then all the easy stuff is easy. Like, well, can you just do a yeah. plain old uh, 401k rollover to an IRA? Uh, yeah. And th- th- that's, that's how the growth of that really started. All right. So what was the timing? So when, when did you make the transition to the, the, the new firm to, to do this switch? I was probably loosely affiliated with SEIA in the early to mid 2000s. Um, I think formally around, yeah, about mid 2000s. And then um, it was, I, I, I transitioned to becoming a direct employee on a partner track in 2015. Um, and then have grown the practice uh, to where it sits right now. Um, it's got a pretty big team and, you know, a lot of different business channels that, that I'm, I'm certainly fortunate to be able to have developed. Uh, but that, that speaks a little bit to the timing. So help us understand what the advisory business just overall under SCIA looks like today. And then I, and I want to come back more to where the, the you know, the, this long-term care, elder care 
sure. uh, offering sits. But help us understand just the advisory practice under SCIA today. Sure. So I'll start with SCIA as, as an RIA. We're, we're, we're a big operation. We're, we're, I think we closed the year at around $16 billion. We've got um, somewhere between 15 to 20 partners and advisors that are doing you know a lot of the heavy lift. And it's funny, you should ask, like, well, what's SCAI look like? Well, the, the, the thing that it hasn't changed is non-discretionary has been sort of the firm brand. I think if you look at the ADV, maybe it's 90-ish plus or minus percent of all of that work is uh, non-discretionary. But we're, we're, we've got a good TAMP and we just accepted in the fourth quarter of last year um, some private equity money for uh, SCIA to be sort of a landing spot for what we're expecting to be, you know, uh, a player in the mergers and acquisitions world. Uh, so we uh, have uh, Reverence Capital Partners as sort of a new investor as of the tail end of last year. And we're just at the chapter of, of how all of this stuff is going to be integrated and how other firms might be coming into the SEIA fold. Uh, but that, that's sort of the hot off the presses changes that we're working with. So, so many advisors, particularly in the RA fee end, are discretionary with you know, almost 100% of the business or literally 100% of their business. I know many that will essentially say, like, if you're not, really, if you're not ready to delegate investment management to us, then you're just not a good fit client for us. So help me understand just like what why non-discretionary as the as the chassis for this and then I want to understand more like just how it actually works. Oh, well, I mean I think I mean I I really like our value proposition on the RIA side of things. I mean I think it sets up for how are we attracting do it yourself advisors that just want maybe some coaching, you know, or maybe they've got a like before we started getting into like direct indexing or cool features like that, you know, sometimes people didn't want to hire a discretionary advisor because of concentrated positions or the models weren't specific enough because of ESG or I hate ETFs or I hate managed funds or whatever it ends up being. So I think the early value proposition was, hey, listen, as long as it can be held on a Schwab or a Fidelity platform, you know, we can sort of play ball with helping to manage around that. And a lot of the research department that, um, you know, it starts off with like a lot of firms, you know, a, a, a model portfolio, sort of a short list of here's our top three or four, you know, funds or ETFs or alternatives in different sectors. And one thing that's interesting with SEIA, which makes us, I think, a little bit unique, is we're a real decentralized uh, firm, uh, meaning the, 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 the DNA of the firm was that on a practice level, as compared to a home office level, a lot of the financial planning and the portfolio stewardship uh, happened at the practice level. So we, we you know, if we're going to be looking backwards, um, I would probably say that SCIA ended up having probably a little bit higher payouts and a little bit more responsibility to do the non-discretionary stuff in the practices. So it required a little bit more pencil and paper and calculators and modeling from the, the advisors. And we weren't doing a lot right. of stuff like we were throwing stuff to sort of the home office, you know, uh, uh, research cloud to kick out what, what the recommendations were. We were doing a lot of the work at the practice level, which is probably part of the reason like my practice 
staff-wise is a lot more built out than uh, other practices of the same size. Um, like my snapshot for the practice is, I look today figuring that it would come up. I think uh, we've got a, a book of about $570 million plus or minus, um, but I've got a staff of 10 right now because we do a lot of the work sort of on on our on our end and you know i think that like every business scia is evolving and it's changing and you know i'll adapt to change as we go but that's a little bit about how it works we push a lot of the analytical uh horsepower out into practice or service teams as compared to house them in the headquarters so what does staffing look like like what are the well i guess two questions how, how many clients is it across 570 million of assets and then what are the what do the staff members do so to probably say about 250, it's less than 300 clients right now. Um, and if you're going to do a snapshot of the staff, it's four CFPs. It's outside of me. It's in addition to, in addition to me, four CFPs, three registered associates. But one of the registered associates, um, which gets back to this, this, this healthcare side of things, um, I hired directly from the senior housing and healthcare industry. Um, I hired somebody that was in the business development world from that she worked at hospice, she worked at assisted living, she worked at life plan communities, and we'll get back to it, but but as it relates to staff, um, she she adds a, a different kind of flavor to this, you know, health money family um, sort of, of uh, cross up. Um, and then we've got a, a, a a marketing person that, that helps out with social media and so on and so forth. But that's basically the way the staff works. Most of the work in terms of what they do, um, three lead advisors um, that are doing a lot of the client work. Um, the client work is usually a balance between regular updates on an e-money plan, um, sometimes with extra heavy flavor and modeling from this healthcare side of things. And we're concurrently... Um, I forgot one last professional. I do have an investment specialist who we hired um, as a, she used to be a researcher for SEIA at the home office. So she's a CFA level three candidate right now, but her, her expertise is to go narrow and deep into a lot of individual investments and alts. And she's got a fixed income background, which is playing nicely with the way the market is going right now. So only other comment in terms of how we're working is, um, Big high believer in teams. Um, we don't do a lot of work with just one person in the room, whether it's bringing in sort of a more junior um, associate advisor um, to and try to get them as many responsibilities from a relationship management standpoint or a loop closing or a CRM follow-up. That's, that's how a lot of our day-to-day -day operations are going. So... Help me understand a little bit more just how the execution of this non-discretionary model works. Like, just I think for so many advisors in the discretionary and for better or worse, we're so used to, yeah, I decided I want to make an investment change in our models or I want to do rebalancing. So, you know, we have it all loaded up on the central technology. We we hit the good old rebalancing button, do a right. review of all the queued up trades, make sure that everything is in good order and that nothing's getting traded that shouldn't get traded. And then it executes. And like nobody has to call a client, nobody has to go check in on this. Um, you know, it, it it happens once once across the book or whatever segment of clients are are in that model. So I, I just try to envision like how does it work when you've got 
250 clients and 570 million of assets that are almost all non-discretionary. So there's 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 sort of two ways to describe it from a practitioner standpoint. The first one is we want to imagine non-discretionary as a spectrum, okay? Which is imagine full discretion on one end of the spectrum and then anything that's not full discretion going all the way down to client is making every single investment decision themselves and basically okay. the you know the advisor is 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 a is a conduit. Um if you were going to be going through, like from full discretion, which again, most of us know, and you're just moving a little bit away from that, imagine there's a space with limited discretion, which is um, I'm going to let you guys um, automate and like the rest of the industry uh, decisions around a certain um, kind of set of transactions. If it's rebalancing or raise money for fees or drive liquidity out of a fixed income or a cash-like position, like you can go ahead and do all that stuff without checking with us. But anything like, you know, anything that 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 that's, you know, a concentrated position change or, you know, you got to swap out a manager or something along those lines, that rises to the level of needing to get back in touch with the client. Then as you're moving down towards sort of full client autonomy, you know, remember, there's this huge bank of clients that, you know, I, what I really want is a catered menu of choices. And I want, and, and I'm just going to uh, 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 super generalize it, like, show me the stock, show me the ETF, show me the managed fund, and show me an alternative. And give me the pros and cons of each, and make sure that each of those choices are curated in a way that I can't really screw up as the investor if I if I choose one or another. Um, but I like the idea of a choice and how does it fit in with the rest of the, right. with the rest of the portfolio? What, you, what you're hearing is, boy, that's a lot of service. And it is a lot of service. It's part of the reason that I'm so, that we're so staff heavy in this, in this non-discretionary model. But, you know, we've got different theories in our industry, Michael, about, you know, is, 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 financial advice, is this like a, 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 a deliverable of a bunch of math or is it an experience that a client needs to sort of feel their way through and hug it out and I have an advisor that knows me and loves me? Like we think that the way that we do the, the, the non-discretionary is sort of a tweener. We always have got quantitative reasoning behind any of our recommendations, but by, we think that by giving the investor agency or a sense of agency in directing some of these individual investment decisions, we find that they're more engaged. They're, we're able to tie back, hey, the reason that we're recommending any of this stuff is remember the financial plan and we got to drive better outcomes. Like the, the, the way that you protect yourself as a practitioner um, from like the crazy client that wants to flip their portfolio every time there's an administration change or 100% solar, like any of those clients. Like we got to build a financial plan and get consensus with our clients. Like how about we agree that we're only going to do investment stuff that serves this financial plan? And what you're doing is you're starting to put some constraints on the range of investor behavior. And ultimately over time, like if you're going to be looking at our book, like how much of our book is at huge variance from where our models are, it's not huge variance. Like, I mean, I bet you if you were to say double the tolerances of a lot of the different portfolios that you see in discretionary world, and do most of our clients fit into twice tolerance on most models? Like, probably. 
you know, because we've sort of coached them there and we know like the math that said, you know, we're believers in asset allocation and, you know, modern portfolio theory and so on. You know, we, 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 we move them because it's our fiduciary job to get the allocation right. And like, there's a lot of work that goes into industry research about, you know, what that looks like. That's kind of how it, how it feels from sort of the advisor dashboard in the non-discretionary world. So I guess I'm just trying to visualize. I I like the spectrum that you set out. So where where does where does your practice sit on that spectrum? Like well, I how think far out in the non discretionary end are you typically? That I think is is there's there's another aspect. The other okay. aspect is the client's preferences for how much discretion changes. Like one big theme for me in my career mm. is clients change their mind all the time. And you know, we go back to we go back to my my priorities and healthcare priorities, and we're talking about it. Like the level of discretion um, that folks want. Like think about agency, and I want to pick every particular security, and I want to go down and manage this Exxon sale by individual lot that my cl- client has to sign off on. That can be true in the early stages of a lot of client relationships where like i want i want you to prove it to me that i still have the ability to make changes based on what i want not what you recommend but you know over time that moderates and like ah you know we've worked with you for a while i'm just going to give me the executive summary and then you move like the majority not all but the majority of our client relationships after a three to five year period, particularly once we get the investments and the insurance and the financial plan all like humming in the right direction, like, you know, we're, we're after that, I would find most of our clients raise their level of trust and confidence in our process and move more towards, I know I used to do all this stuff myself, but I'm now letting you have sort of the stronger grip on the baton. And I'm more interested in executive summary. And can you add any value in any of this personal stuff? So ironically, the book becomes basically more more discretionary over time as just their trust level builds. Yep. Yep. And, and like, and it, let, let's, let's imagine that, you know, most of the cognoscenti in the investment universe, you know, there's, I, I find that there's not an enormous amount of variance at the very high end of the RIA space in terms of what an optimal portfolio looks like. You know, there's a different access and pricing points and things like that, but it's not like you see different firms doing radically different stuff you know, at, at sort of the top of the pyramid. And I think that the more you bring clients up to, here's here's the best research, here's the most cutting edge analysis, here's how it relates back to you. You know, that's how it's sort of like a set, it's sort of like a gravitational pull. Like sooner or later, you're going to optimize your portfolio, whether you want to or not. Yeah. If we use, if we use the financial plan as your guide, you know, I mean, that, that, that's kind of the way that it really sort of plays out. So I, I guess I'm just trying to envision, does your, how does this get reflected in the advisory agreement? Do, do you end out with just a whole bunch of? I don't know, I'm envisioning a form with like check boxes of, uh, you know, you can do the rebalancing trade without my permission. You can do the raise money for fees without my permission, but you do need my permission to swap in a manager, or you can swap in the manager without my permission, but you do need my permission to touch any of the concentrated stock position that I came in with. Like, it's how, it's how it's pretty it's, it's it's pretty it's there's actually fewer boxes um i think that, okay. that in 2023 that's when we're going to roll out the formal language on the limited discretion you know, like i was talking about so there'll be a specific box 
that we've got to go through all of our filings and get our Tamarack unified all set up so that 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 can happen on an automatic basis. Um, a lot of times that the, the boxes are non-discretionary, which is sort of a pitch down the middle. You're going to check with us before you make any trades. And then it's discretionary, which looks like everything else. And we go to model and those sorts of pieces. And the discretionary stuff that we've got internally, it's got the same functionality as, you know, most of our other RIA peers. Like, of course, you've got, you've got some ability to, you know, time uh, the, the divestment away from concentrated positions or tax loss harvest. I mean, it, like certainly elevated models on the discretionary side of things allow for some tailoring to client circumstances. Um, but I think non-discretionary as it's understood is, and, and this, this appeals to a certain section of the market, which is I specifically want to continue to feel in charge. And I feel in charge if you're not doing anything until I give the thumbs up. And I mean, what that really means is we're, we're beholden to actually have our quarterly meetings or when a particular security falls out of favor, we actually have to call the client instead of just do something. And I think that part of our success on a really high retention ratio is non-discretionary forces a higher communication model. You know, and mm-hmm. even if the even if the client is just sort of thumbs upping everything that you put in front of them, you're still talking to them more. You're still checking in. It's just a good point of reference, and you always have that that catch all question. You know, what else is on your mind? You, know, you get something there. So that 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 I think speaks a little bit to you know part of what makes this non discretionary thing grow as well as it did. Like we had a fantastic growth year last year just in this space on the non-discretionary by itself, in addition to and, and, and complemented by this healthcare stuff. Um, so we think that there's a space. We've got you know, good partners in Schwab and uh, Fidelity that appreciate the differentiation. And then I was going to ask just how do you manage the fact that like every, every trade needs a call or a meeting? Like just do you have a system about how you do the calls? Do you like try to time trading decisions or rebalances for when clients are otherwise coming in for a meeting so you can just check in when they're exactly, in a meeting. Exactly. Like, exactly. How do you manage to it? Well, I mean, I think the big thing that you got to manage is, I mean, we're, 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 we've moved to what amounts to be surge meetings, which is, you know, we, we try to get the majority of our first quarter client meetings, like we're coming up on the middle of February right now. So we're right at the front of our first quarter surge. That means we're going to try to get all of our client reviews done in the latter part of the quarter. And what that's, this basically means is, you remember the research cycle. It takes a few weeks to digest what just happened in the previous um, uh, cycle, like what's actionable, what's background noise, those sorts of things. So you know, it takes a few weeks to digest previous quarter. It takes another few uh, uh, weeks for you know the investment cognoscenti to translate that into recommended portfolio changes that then get disseminated to the practice. So we're usually having our client meetings, you know, jammed into not across the quarter, but you know, in a, a more dense part of the uh, you know a handful of weeks. And what the clients benefit from is, you know, we've got a lot of oars in the water rowing in the same direction. We've got very current advice um, and we're able to basically give a lot of the same kind of market commentary that's pretty close to in real time to folks all at the same time. It, It really adds efficiencies than, you know, we wait for the client to call us or it's sort of happenstance scheduling. And so are you meeting with clients quarterly 
all all year long? Like, is this an ongoing quarterly cadence? Like, look at what's going generally. on. Like it's the first half of the quarter. Yep. Try and generally from the second half of the quarter. And yep. so every and so then every meeting, like, here's our list of investment trades that were that we're recommending coming into the meeting. If you're good with these, we'll go again and go ahead and get these wrapped up as soon as the meeting is done. Exactly. And then you've got all of the other value proposition of, you know, how's your family? What's your new goal? What's going on on the insurance or the financial planning side? All of those things are sort of built. And then the the portions of the, the calendar quarter that aren't in these review meetings, it's like it's all it's all following up and all the to do's right, that right, happen right. from those particular meetings. But that's basically how we divide ourselves. I, I think non-discretionary would be very hard. Mm-hmm. If you don't have sort of the discipline in action across the team that we've sort of built, like if it's always just reacting to whatever the new thing is scheduled whenever the client sort of raises their hand, it it sort of would, I don't think the offer would be as good. And, and then how do you charge for this? Like what's the, is there a discretionary fee schedule and a non-discretionary fee schedule? How, how do you set uh, AUM fees in this model? I mean, I think that if you're going to look at the AUM fees that we charge, you, you'd find that we're, we're we're pretty in line with what the market's doing. Like, so what we, so practically speaking, we're charging one quarter in arrears. Um, I tend to, for my practice, schedule flat rates instead of tiered. I, I just find it's easier to explain and it gives me a little bit of a competitive advantage just to sort of do it that way. In our ADV, we've got a band of uh, ranges of fees per different um, level. And the practices and the partners are the ones that are pricing that out. Because sometimes in a non-discretionary thing, somebody needs a lot of work and it's a huge amount of plans or, you know, the portfolio is completely upside down and we got to do a whole lot of work. That's going to be more expensive. Um, and then the, 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 we charge flat fees. And when I say one quarter in arrears, one time period of three months, we collect T plus two weeks into the subsequent quarter. Okay. And so nominally, like you you come out at the the quote unquote traditional 1% a year, just as you build. Nominally, for, for purposes of this, sure. Yes. And with a little bit of tailoring, that's right. And we do have the capacity to do standalone financial planning fees, which was sort of the jumping off point for some of the work that I, we were trying to do with this healthcare uh, differentiated plan. So that was also that's also part of what we're able to do. We certainly embed that level of planning inside of our percent AUM offer. Um, and then we also do it sort of on the side as a standalone. And so is there a difference in how pricing works if it's discretionary versus non-discretionary or is this kind of a quarter per quarter just the standard across the board unless you've got particularly messy weird situations where we it's, may have it's, to adjust? it's probably more of the latter i mean I, I i find that that the um you know we can charge a little bit less for discretionary um just because it's less work you know i mean at the end of the day you're dividing advisor hours and you know, overhead and the rest of it and the, you know, the cost per client acquisition and cost to service a client and whatnot. And I mean, one of the areas that is a, you know, it, like it, it, it's, a, it's a different business model. But I mean, if you're driving higher margin, you want to cut down on cost. I think discretionary is a better place to cut down on costs than non-discretionary. Well, I'm, I'm struck by that dynamic, though, because I, I, I feel like there's a perception in the industry of 
if you're managing on a discretionary basis and clients are delegating all this authority that you're responsible for, that's a quote unquote premium service that you charge more for. If the uh, you know if the client is still retaining a portion of the investment decisions and investment control, they're they're quote unquote relying less on the advisor as the sole steward here. Mm-hmm. That you know if you've got less responsibility over the portfolio because it's shared, that the fee would be lower because you're not doing all this stuff on their on their behalf. So I'm 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 struck by just how you're framing this that. No, no, no. The non-discretionary is at least in line with the cost of discretionary and might actually be higher. Oh, yeah. It's higher. Like- it's higher. Like, I mean, think of it this way, Michael. How long do I have to listen to you, my client? How long do I have to listen to your ideas about investments? You know, tick, tick, yeah. tick, tick, tick. Like, if it's non-discretionary, I, I got to listen longer. I mean, and like, and then yeah. I've got to figure out a way to bring that back to your goals and then to wrap it up and then and to move you to accept the recommendations that I'm making on a fiduciary side of things. I don't have to do any of that in discretionary land. But I, like, I just am, I, I mean, I totally get it from just the dynamic and the reality of what we do. Like, yes, when the client gets involved at level, it's, it's more work, but just Obviously, this isn't how you pitch it to clients, but I'm just envisioning this world of like, so we basically have two options. We can do it. We can do everything for you for this price, or you can be involved and we can share in the labor, but that costs 20%. Uh, I mean, the positioning is, <laughs> the positioning's like, well, I'll put, I'll put my, 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 my salesman hat on for a second. We can manage your portfolio like you were everybody else, or we can manage your portfolio like you were you. And we basically reverse engineer, like, we're going to make sure that the financial plan and your circumstances and your preference and the weird stuff that you're starting out with in your portfolio is accounted for from the jump. And like, we're going to wear our fiduciary hat and we're going to track that here's your starting point. We'll imagine together your ending point in every single one of our decisions in terms of the timing of transactions is whatnot is going to lead to better outcomes, but it's specifically tailored and customized to you. I think and, that and so that's a premium service. Like, yep. look at all, look at all that, you know, specific for you, custom to you. That's a premium service for you. So this isn't non-discretionary. The lesser it's, service. This is non-discretionary. The premium service. Absolutely, hundred percent. And it's and it's Which, because it's tailored. It's customized, yeah. and I can show you it's tailored. I can show it to you mm-hmm. that that if I just give you a menu and you know you can choose X versus Y. And you know, you, you, other clients choose different stuff, and they're cool too. You know, imagine if I just lumped all you guys together, and everybody's in a tax-efficient, moderate growth portfolio. Mm-hmm. Like that—that's not cool. That's easy. Interesting. I think that I just that will be, I think, a striking mindset shift for a lot of people listening to envision. Like, no, no. What if you started with the baseline assumption that non-discretionary costs more? Like, oh yeah. Would you would you approach that differently with clients if that's where you started? Sure, sure. And I mean, I think the only other piece, like, you know, you ask a good, the question you didn't ask was, hey, like, if it's a premium service, and but you're charging the same as discretionary, like, well, what's that about? Um, well, it, it's it's about a model to growth. I think that the idea right now is non-discretionary, as you said, is not the law of the land. You know, it, it, it is a differentiation. I think that that what really is 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 the plan is we've got to build our practice, we've got to build our firm for growth. You know, I think that last year, just for example, the the five hundred whatever it is that's under the practice, like we brought in 
147 million last year. And it's staffed that way and it's differentiated. And we took, I think, strong advantage of a market where, listen, um, everybody's model portfolio went down and nobody was trying to tailor anything to you. Like that, that's a, that's a, like that's a nice differentiation. And I think that, you know, you know how the growth works and driving either driving up multiples for the value of your, your business or driving down costs associated with the delivery of this higher touch thing. Um, that's, it's not going to work with keeping the fee parity if you're not showing the growth that SCIA or my practice is showing. So now bring us back to how the, you know, uh, I don't even know what to call it, the, the, the counseling advice for seniors with Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and cognitive decline. Like, so that what, what are you doing with that in the context of where the business is today? You talked about what you were doing with that in the days when you were a long-term care insurance producer. Now you're in this uh, advisory model. Yep. What, like, what is it, what is it today? Or I guess what, what it sure. evolved to as it comes forward to today? Sure. It's a super good question. So, I mean, I, I think that, that, that my, my, my field of dreams, you know, if you build it, they will come, you know, uh, uh, strategy uh, 10 years ago was to try to build a standalone financial plan at a price point that, um, was at cost or maybe a little bit better, but I certainly didn't want to do a loss leader, but, you know, I didn't want to do a loss leader that, you know, all recommendations are hire us to manage your money. Uh, I just, that, that isn't what I wanted to bring to the market. I wanted to try to do something where we would get some efficiencies. And, you know, most of the time that families really want to figure out, do I stay home or do I move? Or how can I manage uh, the costs of this new um, uh, placement in an assisted living facility? Like I just landed into the new spot, reality's changed, what do I do? Or, you know, those are, those are a lot of the templates of the plans that we were doing. Um, and I tr- and first off, uh, I trademarked um, some of the way that the plans fell out. Like I, I spent a lot of time trying to thinking about, all right, even if you're using some off-the-shelf software to do the math and you're doing Monte Carlos and you're doing, you know, linear analyses and whatnot, like what's, what's the swizzle? Um, and the swizzle is that, and really what we built the trademark around is if we go back to the thesis of, Healthcare priorities are going to hijack your financial priorities, whether you know it in advance or not. Like I, I, I think that the data is overwhelming that it does. That what we do is we build out our scenarios not on different markets or what happens if if somebody dies or whatnot. We build out all our scenarios that track prescribed plans of care. So you get a clinical. Uh, diagnosis. You get a therapeutic path basically mapped out. And we know just from the expertise that I've got and folks on staff has is, listen, stuff doesn't stay the same. If it doesn't work out for you, for Mary taking care of her husband at home, what's that really going to look like? And what I'll share with you is priorities change pretty predictably, at least for a couple, for Mary's example. If home's no longer an option, the next most important thing is where can we go together? and stay together. And that's the new most important thing. And, you know, we're going to find a way to pay for it because the most important thing is to stay together. So in this life care affordability plan that we, we, we trademarked is, all right, if Mary and Bethesda can't stay at home, realistically, where can they go together? And you got to find places that have 
different kinds of options where spouses with asymmetrical needs can maybe share a room, but if that doesn't work forever, where can we accommodate you know, uh, different starting points for Mary and her husband. And imagine what we do is the scenario sort of model out with a lot of feedback that is generated from the senior housing and healthcare industry, whether it's, you know, care managers or aging life professionals or, you know, intake uh, clinician folks at these different facilities or whatnot, but they're the ones that help map out all of the different clinical paths that it could go. And then what we do is we sort of, all right, if uh, Mary's husband progresses at this particular pace and we end up with these kind of out-of-pocket costs, we know at that point then it's T minus one year before we have to sell a beach house. Or we've at that point run out of accelerated distributions from the IRA because we've you know been taking advantage of this big itemized medical expense deduction. So we've been gutting the IRA faster, but we know that that's got to shift And now we're going to be having to start thinking about the taxable account that we tried to put on the side in hopes for a step up and so on and so forth. That's that's the math that we end up doing. And, you know, it was a differentiated enough approach, which is we got the healthcare as the driver. I think going back to teasing my 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 old insurance manager, you know, um, you know, nobody could see this coming. Like, I, I, I just fundamentally don't believe that. I think everybody sees this coming. Um, you know, people get old, needs change, priorities change, but it's not like everybody's making this up for the first time. Others have walked this path before. What can we learn from them? That's really what I tried to build out in this plan. So, so the essence of it sounds like is, you know, someone comes to you in a, you know, a fairly later ongoing stage of, senior health issues, right? You know, uh, Mary comes, her husband has Alzheimer's. She's managing at home right now. We're not quite sure how long that's going to last, but we're going to manage to it as long as we can. Mm-hmm. And so you end out with, I guess, just a very scenario planning based approach of, so if his condition deteriorates very, very slowly and you can stay in the house a long time, you'll like you can use these local services, you can do these things, you can engage in this plan of care, and then here's what your you know your costs and your withdrawals have to be. Scenario two, he deteriorates more quickly. Yep. You need to leave the house, but you want to find a place where you can be together. So here are some potential facilities in the area that could do it. Here's what they cost. Here's how that's going to map into your plan of care. Here's how that's going to impact your distributions and your tax planning strategy and all the other pieces that come from it. And then, I don't know, maybe there's a third one. Unfortunately, something happens and he deteriorates very quickly and passes and you're now a widow. Can we cover your needs from this point forward? Yeah. And you've, you've, you've got the gist of it right away. And like, and this is something that I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be able to project you know, uh, out to this listening audience, you know, like I'm not, I'm not reinventing things that have never been thought of before. I, th- I think that this is a configuration of some off the shelf tools that advisors are already using. It's just jumping off of a different frame of reference, because let's remember, let's go back to what we talked about in the early part of our podcast. It is extremely hard for families to make decisions that involve money in the moment. You know, there's 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 a euphemism like, you know, an emergency room is a terrible time to talk about money for the first time. The way that we think this approach to financial planning really drives better life outcomes for families is we've pre-made a decision. And what we've done is we've put sort of guardrails on the road for the family that when they're in the moment and 
everything's sort of up in the air and sort of emotional and uh, like we all, all of our stress, anxiety, analytics go out the window, we can come back and say, listen, we already talked about this. You saw it coming. You know, we, we've like, we can, we can bring other family members into it. One thing that's really interesting about healthcare decisions and priorities versus financial decisions and priorities, whenever it's healthcare, Michael, all of the family members are in the room. If it's financial stuff, like how many times are you just talking to the money-oriented spouse? So what this does is it introduces a whole lot of like what we call technical buyers, which is people that can say no, but they can't say yes. As soon as healthcare comes into it, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that can kind of jack up your advisory relationship. Like, listen, you know, I know the mom and dad used you as a financial advisor in the past, but stuff's different. And who are you again? And why should we trust you? And I got a guy who's telling me like it, everything goes sideways. Like there's, there's a lot of statistics that say, listen, what is it? 70% of, you know, investors change advisors at the disability of a first spouse, and then another 70% change advisors when money's inherited from one generation to another. It's, I think my offer is that it's because we aren't in the room when everything happens. And by orienting all of our planning around the priorities where, that, are, that are agreed on when everybody's in the room, and that all of the money stuff makes sense through the healthcare lens, which is where they are anyway. I think that you can get calls to action about, hey, listen, this is we got to simplify this stuff. You got accounts all over the place. Like right now, like we just cannot get our arms around. In the meantime, can we just can we just get all this stuff in one place? Like you're going to get a whole lot more thumbs up from all of the decision makers if you're speaking healthcare as a reason to do this. If you're thinking ways to support you know, mom, Mary, when she's trying to manage all this stuff as, you know, setting you up, son, as the successor decision maker, how about we make life easy on you? Like that, that's, I think, some of the real value of this, this different kind of framing of a financial planning approach. So how, how deep are you into, I don't know, like actual services, facilities, providers, like local care options? I feel like a, a lot of us as advisors can say, well, you know, Here's kind of what happens if you need to go into a facility, and and you know uh, we'll 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 budget X hundred dollars a day to to uh, to go into a continuing care retirement community. Uh, you know if you stay home, like yeah, we probably got to budget a little bit of extra for you to have some folks coming in. But anyway, I feel like there are a number of advisors that might do that with some reasonable guesstimate neighborhood numbers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My impression, because you're talking about like, you know, uh, Mary might look at this particular facility because it's a good one close to house for her and her husband right, right, right. living options. Like how how deep are you into like actual services, facilities, providers in the in the area? Oh, I mean, I, I think pretty deep. I mean, just from my from my own experience, like what like there's a long list of reasons why I'm weird. One of the reasons that I'm weird is I really built out a very high degree of literacy on these life plan community contracts. Um, the, the the community that I, I was involved with for, I don't know, a decade or so, which is a Goodwin house, now Goodwin living in Alexandria, um, I, I was one of the architects of their continuing care at home contract that got filed in the state of Virginia and whatnot. So I, I, I bring a pretty high level of literacy and it's more the literacy, Michael, than it is 
like, am I plugged in with, do I have this exhausting network where I know all of the intake people and executive directors all over the industry? That's not exactly true. We should talk just a little bit about how COVID has changed how that industry is sort of approaching the the, the seniors who are our okay. clients that are going to need them. Um, but I'd probably say a differentiation is sort of hyper literacy on how all those business models work. Um, you know, if you're moving into, you know, assisted living, you know, understanding that if, if, if you're going into assisted living and they're telling you you're going in on level two, I want you to expect that you're going to go to level three inside of six months after moving in. Um, like th- those are, those are just little things that having been around the block and actually having a professional that came out of senior housing and healthcare, who's very connected around the beltway in that industry, it, 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 it makes for a, 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 a better experience when you're doing the financial planning because you have somebody on the financial planning team that speaks healthcare and then can quickly translate the implications of whatever that intersection of healthcare and family stuff that like in real time, we can show how the financial decisions that need to be made to support that new direction that the plan of care is, how quickly it can be implemented, whether we need to zig or zag, those sorts of things. And so what tools are you using to do the the scenario planning and modeling? Mostly it's templates that we've built out in eMoney right now. Like the analytical side of things isn't any it isn't real different. So, you know, it's in a lot having, of having better inputs and assumptions it, like our, the knowledge you have of the yeah. industry and how this works. Yeah. And I mean, this, this came back to like, you remember the early, uh, the early softwares, I was sort of a, an early SunGuard user, which, which is super complicated. And, you know, when you get into the planning software, you got to come up with a whole bunch of different workarounds to make the software mm-hmm. like, like yeah. kind of reflect reality. Well, like as soon as you get into continuing care contracts, like, you got to do all, like the, the softwares are pretty good right now. So right. I do know how to model those things with, and you said it right, I think our inputs are first class and the math isn't any different. And I do think, by the way, like if you're thinking of different financial planning software, eMoney is a good example. The multivariate um, analysis on things where you can say this, not that, or these combinations is hugely empowering if you're starting from a healthcare projection into the future as compared to a financial goal-driven plan. Um, Because that way you can more quickly map out variables that the family really hasn't gotten their arms around before. And on that multivariate page, um, that, 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 that I think is, makes the analysis very powerful. And then what do you charge for this? You usually charge about four or $5,000. Generally speaking, okay. we're looking at, we usually try to do it in three meetings. And uh, so there's, there's a point of engagement. We usually have to plug into folks in the senior housing and healthcare industry that have got some clinical perspectives and what those ranges of care plans might be. Like, I think that the due diligence that we do is it can't be us making up the stuff about your clinical future. You know, like we, we got to have somebody else sort of sign off on that. And remember, most folks in the senior housing and healthcare industry, like they don't know what they're talking about with money. They, 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 they're, they're talking mostly about here's the different ways that, you know, how we can accommodate weird behaviors because of the cognitive impairment means this, not that. And then, you know, it's we got to put some work into it. We look up. What's the added cost of bringing the home care into the independent living? And what's the bump from level one versus level two assisted? So it's taken a while to basically uh, you know, establish 
the bank of inputs that makes the efficiency of the plan easier. Okay. Uh, um, that, but it, it still comes back to superior inputs. And then how, like, how do you market this, or who do you market this to? Like, is this sold to clients? Is this just sold out to folks in the community? Is it something else? I mean, and this gets into this gets into the curse of the innovator, which is sometimes best laid plans sort of go by the wayside. The yeah. the the vision really was because of my background and the fact that I speak sort of C suite level senior housing and healthcare stuff. And that we've got other folks on staff that, you know, are have had experience being in the room asking for the $15,000 a month of the new, you know, uh, resident that's coming in. Like, I felt like we plugged into the senior housing and healthcare industry extremely well. And the plan, Michael, was this is going to be a B2B channel. Like, we're going to find a way to be able to position this offer so that that industry, which has formerly been let's say suspicious and side-eyeing the financial services industry. Yeah. Like, look, this is, this is, I'm not asking them to do anything with the money. I'm not selling them anything. Here's a standalone analysis. And like, look, you, you senior housing people, like this all looks like you, right? You know, yes, that is, you know, we got a lot of confidence and there were, I'll share with you before COVID, um, you know, we advanced conversations pretty high up in a number of sort of, name brand providers of senior housing and healthcare services um, to have, whether it's sponsored or co-branded approaches to a bunch of things. But um, I mean, COVID changed everything. And I think this is the, you know, the, the, there's this, there's this way to understand, think of senior housing and healthcare. Think of it as like Maslow's hierarchy for a second, right? Think of the industry as Maslow, like level one is I just need this business to exist. All right. (laughs) I need to be able to pay rent and you know, make payroll and cover our bond covenants. And like one level up from there is our residents need to be safe and they need to be healthy. And the regulators need to not say that we're doing terrible things to them. Like a level up from there is, you know, this is a great community and everybody loves each other. A level up from there is, you know, prestige. And, you know, we're recognized as, as a center of excellence. And like the top, just like we have with, with Maslow, with self-actualizing, the top of a lot of these different things is, you know, we're trying to serve our seniors at the peak of creativity and their spiritual place. And if it's a faith-based nonprofit, like, like you're just trying to go all the way up. COVID smashed that hierarchy. Imagine the pyramid just gets collapsed all the way down to, and this is, I mean, I was on the board. Um, We're trying to have people not die. You know, we're trying to keep our workforce from quitting. You know, this, I've got, you know, I've got people that are in hazmat suits trying to keep people alive that can get paid more by driving Uber or flipping burgers. And the turnover in the senior housing and healthcare industry since the beginning of COVID, something like 30 or 40% of health aid workers have left and they're not coming back. And think, and what, what effectively happened is, Tom, this is a great idea. I love it. But, you know, we're, we're, we're <laughs> we got, we got other problems right now. And, right. you know, I think that, that, that this is an interesting opportunity to take some of the ground that I've covered and the lessons that I've learned and say, look, this isn't this isn't sort of my idea for me by myself. I, I would like to share this. I would like other financial advisors to sort of okay. Wh- what if some of these concepts? How can they be applied 
in my practice so we can serve folks a little bit more. Because right now, what I had been developing five to 10 years of this industry where, where we were going to be the folks in the senior housing and healthcare industry, you know, and I, with, with national aspirations that were imaginable, um, yeah, that just went away. And I think that, what do you do with all this stuff? You know, in the end, I think that, you know, I've had one mentor, you know, give me, and you've had the same speech, Michael, like, is it success or significance? Like, can you reach a certain apogee in, in, in your career? And, and I, I feel pretty strongly that some of the things that we're really meant to do as advisors is to get people better outcomes in their lives. And I think that the path that I've taken on my own road to success are important enough to be shared and not just kept to myself. And so do you see this ultimately like just shifting further in what you do or how you bring it to market? Like does this continue to stay within your practice? Does it go other places? Like, I mean, what, I think what comes next? Well, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I think that the preliminary decision is like, you know, because I'm I'll, I'll be 53 this year and I, I've got quite a long runway, I hope, in front of me in my career. And I think where where what I've stepped away from last year was doing a lot of this leadership and advocacy work in the senior housing and healthcare and dementia industry. Like I, I've I've put in two and a half decades of my life and 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 and, and I, I invaluable personally, professionally, the rest of it. I think this is a this is sort of a pivot, which is I have I have not used my perch as a successful advisor to help project some of these best practices to the rest of the industry. And I think that the form of what that looks like is sort of to be determined. I, I'd like to imagine that um, you know this expertise can be shared if it's something that you know, leaders in the industry think is really additive or multiplicative in terms of a number of different business models. But in the end, you know, when you think of, when you think of, you know, 70% of people change advisors, you know, at the disability of the first spouse, like, think of it like, well, they're going somewhere and they're going to folks like me. So, you know, there's, there's dumber business yeah. models to come up with. And like, how about we just develop this expertise so we can be in the room and then we can apply whatever our other skills, pa- talents, passions, whatever it is. But that, I think, is, is the inflection point for decisions that we as an industry really need to improve on. So as you look back on this journey, what's surprised you the most about building an advisory business? What surprised me the most? Um, I think that, that um, moving from being uh, very competitive and maybe scorecard motivated or money motivated. Um, I was surprised in going into the advisory business that in my own experience, that that got replaced by trying to be part of a greater good so completely. I think that like, so I think that the idea of Alzheimer's was my particular piece. Other advisors have their own sort of passion projects or areas where they're trying to change the world. I think that for me, you know, the idea of of being successful from a production standpoint or an AUM standpoint, by having it all roll up to serving what I what I'd like to think is a greater good beyond what my own individual practice would be able to do, that has kept me much more inspired and working harder 
um, than I would have imagined when I started an advisory business. Um, I think if it was just about, I think if it was just about whether it's 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 financial success or you know uh, 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 comparisons of excellence of practice and whatnot, I don't I don't think that I would be working quite as hard if it wasn't plugged into these these larger themes. So I guess that was a little bit of a surprise, a pleasant surprise. What was the low point for you on this journey? Mm, I think the low point was, you know, some of the lessons that I learned came from um, came from my wife Beth and I uh, having uh, a hand in the the care of my in-laws for a while. I think that there was a I had already established myself as sort of a subject matter expert, you know, and my my mother-in-law died of pancreatic cancer in let's see what was it 2007 8 somewhere in there. And my father-in-law um got diagnosed with uh, kidney failure right after she died, but it was right coming into the stock market crash. And the uh, uh, so I know because of my subject matter expertise that you know the thinnest of silver linings is at least dialysis picked up by 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 Medicare like it's it's the one chronic illness yeah. that you get the the Medicare you know thumbs up and I knew that the cost of this care was actually not going to be financially impacting my father in law as a widower. But the market crashes, and I'm managing his stuff because it's it's easy. And uh, my father-in-law comes to me and he says, "Like, look, it, it, there's just too much. I mean, he's 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 buried his wife a handful of months ago, and I, I need to get out of the market." Look, look, no, dialysis, it's fine, it's all paid for. But it, it very much came down to this is I'm I'm on overload, and I think that that you know it ended up that you know my cautionary tale of trying to have the professional role compete with the supportive spouse and the supportive son-in-law, you know, they, they, you know, in the end, um, the only way that we, that I, as part of the family was going to be able to keep him invested in the market was uh, to, to, to play a non-family role. And that's not what my family sort of needed from me in the time. It was a little bit like it was a tough lesson, Michael, that like, you can't do brain surgery on yourself. You can't play the role of a professional and a doctor and a supportive spouse at the same time. Like you got to, and my lesson was everybody's going to default to their primary family role in the end, no matter what. So any of the other roles and responsibilities that you might have are going to get lost in the wash because, you know, you want somebody to be comfortable or feel safe or feel loved or secured or or whatnot. And that's how uh, the low point was we sold out of family money in the dip in the market right after this period of care that I should have been a professional expertise on. My woulda, coulda, shoulda was there needed to be some other advisor in the house. And it was a low point that I'm trying to, you know, that's, that's a little bit about what I learned. It sort of builds into my, a lot of my beliefs about excellence in decision-making on a family level that integrate all of these different things, it was sort of bouncing off of that particular low point, And it's certainly a memorable one. So what else do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you 15, 20 years ago as you were starting to move away from the long-term care insurance producer and into the advisory side of the business? I mean, I think knowing myself then, um, I think that the 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 trials and tribulations and innovations that went south, you know, part of being a good innovator, we know, is you have to accept failure. 
And as long as you uh, uh, learn from and get actionable knowledge from that particular effort, you know, it's going to work out in the long run. I probably would tell myself 15, 20 years ago, don't get quite so pissed off at the failures. The, 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 I, I tend to invest a lot in my next new cool idea. And like, I'm an all in the next new cool idea guy. Like I'm, I'm, I'm home run swings all the time. And when those things don't work, um, you know, I think earlier in my career, before I got used to having some of these failures not work, you know, I'd, I'd be doing some pebble kicking. I'd, I'd be doing a lot of woulda, coulda, shoulda. My advice now would be relax. There aren't a whole lot of people trying new things. There aren't a whole lot of people that are trying to move into this space. And, you know, you, you can probably chill out a little bit more. That would be my future Tom to past Tom advice. Is there a particular, you know, what, what was the worst, like... <laughs> home run swing that missed. I think that there was there was a there was an effort in these life plan communities that you know you could I, I was very I mean I don't know if I believe I was first to market in doing some very sophisticated modeling of um, you know how you move into these places and what exactly you need to do to optimize like for example like type A contracts and life plan communities involve a pro rata medical expense that you can deduct. So I was pretty early to the, with you could, if you can deduct that, then maybe you can net it out and do a big Roth conversion. I, I did all sorts of cool stuff from a modeling standpoint there. And my biggest, my biggest whiff was coming up. It reminded me a little bit of the lunch with Mary. Now that I'm thinking about it, I go to the hierarchy in this life plan community and say, look at how awesome we could be treating your re- incoming residents um, with with doing good planning with the way that your contract is set up. And I think the, the worst whiff was, yeah, that's great, but we, we don't we don't we don't care about that at all. And uh, the thing that we really um, want to do is we want to get these rooms occupied as quickly as possible. So we're happy hypothetically to work with you after the fact, but we're definitely not going to interrupt our sales pipeline where mm. somebody might be moving in and hey, wait, let's do a bunch of math before you sign on the dotted line, like that, that's like a, that's a non-starter. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, that, that was probably my biggest pebble kick. It was looking back at my plan, but, but, but it's just, you know, like just nobody cares. And, uh, that, that was, that was one of a number of them. And it still is, is part of the DNA of a lot of the financial plan stuff that we do. But, you know, the, the, and now, like, as it stands right now, like senior housing and healthcare, it's hard to find the same people in the same right. positions that were there last year. I'd like to think that it's a dream deferred as compared to a dream crushed um, uh-huh. of, of having, of having this, this financial planning approach plug into that industry. Um, but that, that was, that was, that was sort of telling um, moving backwards and just getting a better understanding of, you know, Tom, you're not, your, your cool thing isn't as cool as you think it is. So what advice would you give younger, newer advisors coming into the industry today and looking to get started? Well, I think that there's sort of two ways to think about all of the realities of seniors and their changing needs. And and I guess I would probably say, if you're thinking tactically, like on a household level, you know, I would tell new advisors to say, listen, you want to think proactively or reactively, like, because your clients are going to be coming up with, with this stage of life. And if you need to react you know, to somebody just has a healthcare need, you know, 
pay a lot of attention to liquidity needs based on worst case healthcare scenarios. Like make sure you're checking the deductibility of medical expenses, you know, account for higher withdrawals. Like my goodness, if if the financial needs of the household change, the portfolio probably needs to change in a good way that I think that, you know, I would say kind of critically, you know, are you meeting your financial fiduciary responsibility if you change nothing in a portfolio model when everything has changed in the household in terms of cash flow responsibilities for 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 the for the client? That's probably what I would say. I think proactively, you know, can you think you know, ask your clients, you know, who do you think is responsible for healthcare decisions? I always like that phrasing, Michael, because it's not the same as who's your power of attorney. Like, you you say, th- that, say yeah. that again? How do you ask it? Yeah, I ask it this way. Who do you think is responsible for your healthcare decisions? And like that gets a different response. And then you compare that with who's got a durable medical power of attorney because it's not the same thing all the time. And, you know, who do you think is responsible for for financial decisions? And like that that one turn of phrase, it, it helps because it, it, it helps the family anticipate any muddiness in the decision making. And then you can do a better job of prescribing who your surrogate decision makers should be. Um, because when you ask who do you think is responsible, just it's going to prompt the... Where I'm just envisioning people easily saying like, well, my son's the power of attorney, but, you know, my daughter's probably going to end up being right. off the shot, right? Like right, just right. that that answer is going to show right up when you say, who do you think's responsible? Yeah. And like, and like, it's like that, that new advisor, that should be captured in your CRM, you know, like, like hypothetically. So I think the other thing too is, is, you know, does the responsible party that you just said you think is responsible for healthcare or you think is responsible for financial decisions, you know, do they have the authority and the legal documents? Do they have the capacity or the willingness or the competence or do they know me? You know, or do they know your financial plan, or do they know where everything is? Like, there's this whole space in there that I think proactively new advisors can really improve the depth of their advice when stuff happens down the road. Um, Michael, if I was going to say, like, uh, on on the practice level, all right. Well, look, you know, Tom, let's imagine that I'm building a practice, or I've got a practice. Like, what do you think on a practice level? Like, well, reactively. You know, I think that the idea of, you know, asking permission to talk to and engage other aligned professionals from other disciplines, you know, to see on a practice level, can you ever get in the room or close to the room? Um, and you don't have to do anything other than witness the, the formation of the new hierarchy of priorities. And that's the language that you use to drive better calls to action when you actually prescribe something financially. Like that, I think that that should be that should be on a practice level. Listen, when stuff happens, I need to do a better job of getting in the room or being able to understand the clinical realities that my client is facing because that's what's going to drive all the financial action. You know, it, it, it's it's if you were going to say, you know, hey Tom, are there stages in a client's life where everything changes, but you kind of should know about it in advance? Like, yeah, it's it's when there's a change in healthcare and you got new decision makers, you know, trying to figure it out with so much ambiguity, like. We, as an industry, we as like advi- an advice offer, like we can't be bystanders here because then like then you're just going to lose the business and you're not going to help your clients. So I think that that's I think all of us should aspire to being more integrated in the decision making in that dynamic circumstance. 
And then I do think the the last one is, um, you know, I think from a practice level for advisors, look, you know, do an age audit of your clients and see what your book of business looks like in 10 years or 15 years. And that should tell you a lot. You know, if all of a sudden everybody's 80, you know, <laughs> what are you going to be talking about then? Do you want to get a head start on this now? You know, maybe you should start thinking along these lines and shifting the way your practice operates so you're not reacting to business models like the one, Michael, that you and I are talking about, which are a few steps ahead, and that's what's getting differentiated. I think that the industry is doing some interesting stuff that is sort of forcing you know, at least a CYA level of standard of care. Like think of like trusted contact forms that we've all got to do. You know, yep. my goodness, this is such an opportunity to ask questions and to add value. Like if you're not having conversations off your trusted contact forms, like who's this? And then you just go into the, who, who do you think is your healthcare? Who do you think is your financial? Like you should yeah. be catching all that. Do you think that they should know me? Probably, you know, is there a way that there's a safe space for you to, make some deposits in that next generation relationship so you can prequel your uh, the impact that you can have in crunch time um, somewhere down the road. I think that's right. I think, you know, beneficiary reviews, this is, this is, this is sort of 101, but, you know, beneficiary reviews, this is the same cast of characters that's on the trusted contact. So it's another way sort of in. I think the only other piece is a lot of us, from an industry standpoint, like we're starting to play around with different kinds of technologies. You know, some of us are doing a lot more work with firm portals. You know, are you using that as an opportunity to share documents or plans with aligned professionals? You know, some of us are using video to describe how the financial plan is driving investments. Can you ask if any of the video or the, 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 the client meeting summaries can be forwarded to other family members so that when the time comes, they're not doing it from scratch. Like all of these sorts of things, I think could make a huge impact in our capacity to serve. That would be the advice I would be giving new or or even existing advisors. Very cool. So as we come to the the end here, this this is a podcast about success, and and one of the themes is always even that word success means means different things to different people. And so you've you've built you know wonderfully successful practice with the five hundred and seventy million dollars under management and a, and a great client base and, and continuing to grow and so the the business is in a good place but how do you define success for yourself at this point? I'm I'm, I'm struck with two thoughts. I mean I, I've noticed like now that I'm an old man of fifty that my I'm, I'm becoming a lot more motivated with. Um, bringing up next generation talent in the industry. I'd like to think I arrived at that place where mentorship and, and, and being able to bring opportunities that our industry can offer to more people. I'm, I'm glad I've got plenty of career left um, while that sort of motivation hit me. So that, that's sort of one. How, how can I continue to expand um, you know, the, the, the number of professionals that I can touch in some small way that can make sort of an impact that I've been able to experience. And I guess the other sort of more inward focused um, success, it's, it's, probably, it's probably some ripoff of Napoleon Hill, you know, like, can you make full use of your talents and your passions and your skills? I think that part of 
what's driven me so far is feeling like I've had some excess capacity in some of those different places that might not have been fully utilized in my career, which is probably what gave me a lot of horsepower in the senior housing healthcare effort. I'd like to think success moving forward is the same sort of things. Do I feel like all of those different pieces that I bring to bear in my life and in my career are are, are as fully tapped as possible? That That would certainly be a a, a, a welcome measure of success for me down the road. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. So happy to be here. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.